Hey, this is Kim. Just a heads up, this episode does include some discussion of sex. You might want to be aware of when and where you listen. Okay, here's the show. Back in 2011, Eric Kutcher was a student at Columbia University in New York. And one day, he and his friends decided to go donate blood at a blood drive on campus. We went to the gymnasium, and I walked in, I filled out the questionnaire, and there was a question that said, as a man, have you had sexual contact with another man even once since 1977? I was very um, transparent in terms of, you know, wanting to make sure I I honestly answered the question. So I put yes and expected that I would have a chance to talk through what that meant with someone. And when I went and I handed in the form, I was told that I was not eligible, no further questions asked. And I remember the shame and embarrassment that I had walking out of that gym. That day, Eric came up against a longtime rule from the Food and Drug Administration that indefinitely barred gay men from donating blood. The rule dated back to the 1980s, when the AIDS epidemic first emerged. Scientists realized the HIV virus could be transmitted by blood, and since gay men had higher HIV infection rates, they were banned from donating. But now, after years of pressure from advocacy groups, blood banks, and other experts, that rule might change. The FDA announced a new proposal last week that would allow monogamous gay and bisexual men to give blood for the first time in decades without having to abstain from sex. That's Fennett Nirapil. He's a health and science reporter at The Post, and he says moving away from deciding who can give blood based on sexual orientation is a big deal. The U.S. and really the rest of the world has long dealt with the blood shortages, and you've had a significant portion of the American population barred from giving blood uh, because of who they have sex with and because of fears of HIV transmission. So this new policy change is going to allow thousands of gay and bisexual uh, men who are in monogamous relationships and aren't having sex with multiple partners to give blood for the first time. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Kim Belware. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Today, I talk with Fennett about who would be able to give blood under the new rule and how the proposed changes are being felt in the LGBT community. So I want to go back in time and talk a little bit about the history of gay men and blood donation. When did the ban against gay men donating blood begin? In the 80s, we were still learning a lot about HIV and AIDS, and deaths predominantly in the gay community were skyrocketing. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. What do we know so far? AIDS appears to be a virus transmitted through blood, semen, saliva, and other body secretions. Nationwide, more than 1,600 victims since 1979. Four out of every 10 dead, cases doubling in number every six months. Public health officials say it is a deadly epidemic among gay men. And you actually had thousands of people in the 80s who contracted HIV through blood transfusions uh, before scientists really fully understood how HIV causes AIDS and how it can spread in blood as well as uh, through sex. 
So the FDA had imposed what was essentially a lifetime ban on any man who has had sex with any man since the late 70s when scientists believe HIV first arrived in order to prevent the risk of uh, the virus spreading through blood transfusions. So in 2015, the FDA relaxed the restrictions so that instead of a lifetime ban on gay men, as long as you haven't had sex with another man in the last year, you would still be eligible to give blood. Well, after 32 years of banning blood donations from gay and bisexual men, federal health officials are now lifting the lifetime ban, allowing them to donate to our nation's blood supply. And then in 2020, when we faced a really dire blood shortage uh, because of the pandemic, they relaxed that further to as long as you haven't had sex in the last three months. It is unquestionably true that uh, gay men and other men who have sex with men are at higher risk of contracting HIV. Part of this is that when you have a virus that's in a community already and it's in a smaller network, you're just more likely to be exposed to that virus. But at the same time, the standard that they were using of just focused on have you had sex with just one person uh, since the 70s, for a lot of activists and experts, they thought it was an overly broad approach that was turning away a lot of qualified uh, blood donors. So, Fennett, let's break down this new rule a bit. What exactly is the FDA changing about who can donate blood as of now? So under their proposal, and I should be clear, it hasn't been finalized yet, but with this proposal, the questions would instead ask everyone, not just men who have had sex with other men, the new risk assessment would ask potential donors if they've had any new sexual partners or multiple partners in the past three months. They can give blood if they say no. And if they have had multiple partners or if they've had a new sexual partner, they would also be asked if they've engaged in anal sex in the last three months. And if you've engaged in anal sex, you would have to wait another three months to donate. So this new rule makes it a lot more inclusive. Right. So this new approach takes more of an individualized uh, risk approach that's not just looking at, are you a member of this identity group, but are you facing a higher risk of contracting HIV because of your sexual practices? And it's doing it in more of a way that's uh, neutral towards sexual orientation and neutral towards gender. Fennett, from the public health perspective, why is there this particular fixation on anal sex? Because it's easier for HIV to transmit in um, anal sex versus vaginal sex. And uh, transmission of HIV in oral sex is extremely unlikely unless there's an exchange of fluid if you have like an open uh, wound in your mouth or something like that. And then also there is a difference in risk of anal sex in gay couples versus heterosexual couples. And it's not because of like the mere act itself. It's just because there are higher rates of HIV in the in uh, the gay community. So that's why a lot of the prevention efforts are targeted at that community. But it's also not exclusively the gay community. So are there any other guidelines that would still prohibit gay men from donating blood? Right now, if you're having anal sex and if you have multiple partners, you would still be barred from giving blood. And one of the tensions here is that there have been major advancements in HIV prevention so that people can be sexually active and have multiple partners and still keep their risk of contracting HIV very low. Yeah, that's pre-exposure prophylaxis, what's commonly known as PrEP, right? 
Yes. So right now, you can take once daily medication that drastically reduces your risk of contracting HIV. This has been the linchpin of public health strategies in in HIV prevention uh, because people are able to have uh, multiple sexual partners and able to lead uh, healthy sex lives with a much lower risk of contracting HIV. Gay men and really anyone who takes PrEP would not be able to give blood. And that's because uh, taking PrEP creates issues with the blood screening test's ability to detect HIV. So it's not so much um, the fact that they think that people who are on PrEP are more likely to get HIV than the general population. It's a blood screening issue. But there is still a question here of, well, if you're encouraging people to take PrEP to drastically reduce their risk of HIV, can't, can't you trust them in, to give blood? So the frustration here is that a lot of people are still sexually active and they're doing all the things that public health tell them to do that drastically reduces your risk of contracting HIV, but the risk is still considered too high to donate blood. And when the Biden administration announced this proposed change last week, I actually asked one of the FDA's top officials, Peter Marks, to explain this PrEP issue. Why are people who are on PrEP doing the things that public health tell them that they need to be doing to functionally eliminate the risk of contracting HIV still being treated here as if they're at high risk for uh, giving blood that has HIV in it? And basically, Peter Marks and others I spoke to said that this PrEP issue may be revisited down the line. And I should say, all donated blood is screened. The world now has technology to screen blood for HIV and other viruses it didn't have in the 1980s. But the concern is there's still a gap period where the virus can go undetected in the early days of infection, which is why they want questionnaires on sexual behavior that puts one at risk for HIV as an added layer of security. We have to maintain the current safety of the blood supply. And moving forward, as we're doing now, this may not be the final resting place of where we end up, but it allows us to move forward uh, and to at least make a leap uh, forward uh, to allow uh, some men who are not taking PrEP uh, to donate. So these rules are in the proposal phase right now. Um, if they're adopted, when would they go into effect? So what I hear from experts is that newly eligible people probably wouldn't be able to give blood until the end of this year at the earliest, if not next year. And that's because right now the FDA proposal has to go through a 60-day public comment period. It has to be revised further. And then the blood banks have to go through a whole other process to start implementing changes to their screening questionnaires. So, Fennett, you've mentioned how there's been this evolution of guidelines going back to the mid-'80s. Why is this proposal change happening now? So the FDA has been under consistent pressure to uh, change their guidelines from LGBT advocacy groups, from blood banks themselves, and from other experts. And especially in the pandemic when there was such a shortage of uh, blood because uh, back in 2020, before vaccines were available and uh, when uh, COVID was first uh, hitting the scene, people did not want to be going to uh, blood donation centers and be around a bunch of people. So these recent developments have created additional pressure to expand uh, the blood supply. And then there's also new 
there was also a new uh, study that was uh, launched in recent years too that the FDA is relying on in order to make changes to its approach. I should also say too that um, the United States isn't alone here. Several other Western countries have moved towards a similar model of uh, changing screening for blood donation eligibility, including Canada and the United Kingdom. So here in the U.S., what impact will opening up blood donation to gay men who meet the donation requirements have on the national blood supply? So I haven't really seen a good estimate on how many additional people could uh, donate or how much they think this would increase uh, the blood supply. And it's also important to recognize here that just because you're eligible to give blood doesn't mean that you are going to be giving blood. For a lot of uh, gay men out there like me, we've just kind of always been used to the fact that we're not allowed to give uh, blood. Blood banks and others are going to have to embark on a campaign to really let people know that they are newly eligible. And then there are some open questions here of how is the overall blood supply going to be affected if you allow new gay men to give, but you're also uh, barring new people from giving blood for the first time too. So this is all still an open question. After the break, what this proposal means for the people who've been barred from donating blood for decades. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So, Fennett, over the past few decades, how has this ban impacted men who have sex with other men? We hear consistently how this ban has made people feel like pariahs, that they're isolated, that they can't be trusted to give blood, because giving blood is one of the most uh, selfless acts you can perform in this society. We see after natural disasters or mass tragedies of people all going to line up to give blood. Uh, This happened after the mass shooting at the Gay Pulse nightclub in Florida several years ago. After that mass shooting, many people in the gay community were not able to give blood and and support their community after a tragedy like that. So one person we spoke to uh, for this story, Matthew Gatula, said not being able to donate blood was just another way he felt stigmatized as a gay man. We face discrimination. We've been othered. We've been facing stigmas since the AIDS crisis. And so what it would mean to me to be able to donate blood is I would feel like I matter just as much as anyone else who wants to be a part of the solution and to help people. So Matthew wanted to be part of the change. So he decided to participate in a study that would look at how can we change the requirements for blood donations without de facto banning a big swath of gay Americans. Originally, what got me interested is in 2022, the American Red Cross declared its first ever national blood shortage. And... It was a result of the pandemic and a lot of people needed blood and they were going through it and they said, hey, we need 
we need more people to donate. And I wanted to donate. My blood type, I happen to know, is O positive. And it's one of the highly sought after blood types because so many people have it or can receive it. And I found out that I could not donate because I'm a part of this group called MSM, or Men Who Have Sex With Men. And I said, that's not right. Um, and a lot of gay men felt very similar. And I saw their posts on social media saying, hey, they don't want our gay blood. You know, We're used to being told no. We heard from a lot of people like Matthew uh, who talk about this feeling of like isolation and stigma. And especially for a lot of uh, gay men growing up in this country, you're taught to feel shame about who you are and that there's something wrong with you. And when there are these kind of prohibitions on blood donations and it's an opportunity to be like a good member of your community and to and to care for others, being barred from that act has been stigmatizing for so many people and has made people feel like they're less than. We spoke to Eric Kutcher, who's now an addiction medicine fellow at NYU. He told us that story in the beginning of the episode about when he tried to donate blood and was turned away. He said he thinks that moment really affected him because your own blood is just such an intimate and personal thing. It's inside my body. It helps keep me alive. And I think there was something that was really jarring, that my blood was deemed so dangerous and high risk of HIV just because I was a man who had had a sexual contact with another man even once since 1977. And I think to me it was this idea that something vulnerable and intimate and personal was um, you know, influencing the way that I can and cannot help society um, and was making assumptions about my overall health. So, Fennett, what are people who are now allowed to donate blood saying about this new change? Well, I saw people being ecstatic that they would be able to give blood for the first time and because they've wanted to feel part of this institution, they've wanted to perform this act of community service. I think that for many of us, this makes a smaller difference, right? It means that now when there's a blood drive at the hospital, um, I can actually participate in it rather than getting a little bit upset about what it reminds me of, of my my own background. Um, My hope is that at least now, young gay men or young men who are questioning can read these and actually get maybe a little bit more accurate information about what HIV risk transmission is um, and uh, not feel just stigma. Well, I wonder how people feel about the fact that there are still restrictions based on sexual activity or if you take PrEP. Does it actually feel like a win or are there still feelings of isolation? Oh, there's a lot of pushback to this uh, proposal from folks who say it still doesn't go far enough because you are still barring sexually active uh, people from giving blood if they're having anal sex. And that's the key here is like even though they say the focus is is supposed to be gender neutral, supposed to be sexual orientation neutral, the effect of it is still going to be disproportionately barring gay and bisexual men. And there's a lot of frustration here that with all of the advancements in public health, the LGBT community really had to learn how to advocate for itself and protect itself from HIV, especially when back in the 1980s, uh, the government often failed to treat uh, the crisis with the urgency it deserved because uh, gay men and men who have sex with men were considered less than in society or were considered deviants or what have you. So there's a lot of enduring frustrations uh, here still that you can't find other ways of demonstrating that you're at low risk of contracting HIV. HIV. 
So, Fennett, I also know from your past reporting that uh, gay men in particular are really familiar with responding to public health crises and guidelines. And do you think that the input from the gay community in particular has been incorporated enough in these guidelines? You really do see people divided on this. Like, the most common line is that this is a great step forward, but more needs to be done. Just like a lot of other aspects of equality, you know, it comes in in small steps. And the FDA is being extremely cautious, and I think that's a good thing. They're trying to look at the data and see where the risk is. Uh, But there's still a lot of room for improvement. A lot of folks are welcoming the fact that monogamous people are going to be able to give blood for the first time, but they also stress that monogamy isn't the only way to avoid uh, contracting HIV as well. This rule change is really meaningful for a lot of people who've really wanted to give blood, who've really wanted to be part of their community, to look out, to look out for others. And because, I mean, one of the dynamics here, too, is for gay people in America or and other queer people, you've often been told that, like, you're not a good member of society, like, you're, that you're making society worse, you're, you're not welcome here. The act of giving blood to save the life of someone else is is a reminder that you are a valued member of society here, and a lot of people are really looking forward to that opportunity to give blood. As a community, we've been through a lot of sexual health and you know public health related concerns, um, and that they make us stronger, they make us learn a lot, and they make us figure out how to take care of each other and 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 help us figure out how to best contribute to society. Um, And so I think this is another um, example of the evolution of how stigmatized and marginalized groups, when they are trying to figure out how to coexist in society and find their place, I think this is an example of that. Fennett, thank you so much. Of course, thanks for having me on. Bennett Nirapil is a health and science reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Eliza Dennis. If you want to support the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Kim Belware. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.